Demand for, uh, for mental health services uh, has risen quite sharply over the last few years, uh, right across the Western world. It's not really just in the UK. Uh, at the same time, obviously, uh, challenges in our economy have made uh, the cost of providing mental health care really skyrocket. And actually, uh, mental health services are at uh, an all-time high in terms of how stretched they are. Uh, so increasingly, I've been reading a lot about this recently, increasingly mental health professionals have been grappling with many important questions, one of which is this. Is there something that we can do? Is there some practice or, or, or something that we can invest in which is going to help the maximum number of people to a maximum amount using very limited resources? That's a good question to ask, right? Now, of course, no one's expecting that we're going to find some silver bullet, some, some key, uh, key revelation which is suddenly going to make everyone better and transform everything. But I was reading a study published by Berkeley University, or Berkeley University as we call it, uh, that seems to have zeroed in on one incredibly helpful practice. One thing that is unusually effective in helping people overcome many different mental health challenges and is also unusually free. And that is this, the practice of... Gratitude. It's being grateful. They cite a, a large number of very powerful academic studies in the last few years that are leading to one conclusion, that thankful people are happier people. Derek Carpenter writes this. He says, the benefits of practicing gratitude are nearly endless. People who regularly practice gratitude by taking time to notice and reflect on the things they're thankful for experience more positive emotions, feel more alive, exhibit less anxiety, sleep better, express more compassion and kindness, and even have stronger immune systems. In fact, the science of gratitude is so compelling, there's an entire industry is beginning to form around this. I don't know if you kind of noticed. If you look uh, in bookshops, you know, we are awash with books and journals and courses and mentoring and, and you know, coaching. And you name it, there's an entire multi-million pound industry is built around helping you and I become more thankful people. That's just one of the, the, thing, the kind of movements we're beginning to see in our society at the moment, completely independent almost of the church. And yet it was fascinating, as I began to explore this topic, what I discovered was many of the principles that are being kind of taught in these books and, and these seminars are things that the Bible has actually been saying for centuries. They're expounding on a lot of these key Bible principles. Giving thanks has been at the heart of Christian prayer for thousands of years. That's hopefully no great surprise to us. But actually, as we're kind of in this season of life where we're thinking about prayer more as a church, I want to look at this aspect of our prayer life, which, to be honest, maybe sometimes gets a little bit neglected, gets a little bit overlooked. I know it does for me. I'm probably not the only one. So I want to look at a few things that the Bible has to say that also seem to be increasingly backed up by modern research. The first is that gratitude is something that we can and, in fact, needs to be learned, something that we can grow in. It doesn't just develop naturally. It's something we need to intentionally learn and develop. Of course, this is probably most obviously visible if you spend any amount of time with tiny children. Uh, you, you'll, you'll probably notice if you've got kids or you've spent any time with kids, uh, young, young children, that um, gratitude probably isn't something that we, uh, we are inherently born with. All right. Uh, we don't necessarily seem to have this innate sense of gratitude. I'm sure we've all had moments of, of that awkwardness where we've seen a, a very young toddler, maybe or a young child, say something 
brazenly ungrateful in front of a, a, a loving parent or grandparent or whoever it is, completely unaware of how much that might be offensive. But actually, we shouldn't be surprised at that, really. You know, that, that child needs to learn gratefulness like we do. They've probably not really grasped fully or grappled with the fact that the presents under the Christmas tree or the food on the table or whatever it is, it costs somebody something in their time or their energy, their money, their work to provide that for them. They haven't really thought this through. They haven't had time to think about expressing thanks. But the truth is, of course, this isn't just unique to children, is it? It's an area of life that we all can and we all must cultivate and grow in. The reason the Bible exhorts us again and again and again to be thankful is it's something that we need to continually revisit, something we need to be intentional about in our lives. The second thing that gratitude, uh, to, or that, that we learn about gratitude is that it's something that is very powerful, especially when it is given expression. When it's, when it's expressed, it's not just kept as a, as a feeling in our heart, but it's something that we give voice to in some way. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, he talks about this. He talks about, with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to God. That's actually what we've been doing this morning, isn't it? He acknowledges gratitude. Yes, it's something that begins as an attitude of our hearts. It's something that comes up from within us. But, but actually, it, it, to be powerful, it, it can't just stay there. We need to actually externalize that. We need to vocalize that in some way. He's encouraging them, in this case, to sing. Or maybe to speak. Maybe to externalize. Maybe to write. Maybe to do that in some other way. I think sometimes Christians can be tempted to think, well... God knows I'm grateful. <laughs> you know, I don't, don't really need to say it. I think that's almost a bit like me saying, well, my wife knows I love her. <laughs> don't, don't, you know, don't, don't need to say anything about it. Don't need to go there. Actually, it does me good. It does her good. It does our relationship good. Actually, when I express that, when I, when I, when I act and when I speak in a way that is according to my love. Another principle is that gratitude is very powerful when it is part of our lifestyle. It's not just something that we do when things are going well or when we feel like it. Irrespective of our circumstances, we make a practice of being grateful, of giving thanks. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians to a church that was really in hard times. In chapter 5, verse 18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances, not just when things are going well. The fact is, even on our worst day, we have so much to be grateful for, don't we? In our worst moment, there is so much that we must be thankful for. In fact, practicing thankfulness when, precisely when we are struggling, precisely when we're feeling embattled, is, is actually turning out to be a vital key to picking ourselves back up. Berkeley University studied 300 people that were, that were suffering with depression and anxiety. They were divided into various groups, and over a period of weeks, one group was given various tasks aimed at helping them to identify and to express and to externalize gratitude. Sometimes that was gratitude towards other people. Sometimes it was just expressing things that they were thankful for in their lives. Uh, this group alone uh, reported significantly better mental health for and then again 12 weeks after the task ended. Their, their thanksgiving, their, their attitude of thanks wasn't dependent on their circumstances. As they made a practice, as they made a discipline of being grateful, they found that actually their heart and their emotions began to change. 
The final uh, pr principle we see, or that I'm going to talk about anyway, is, that, is, is, is the practice of expressing gratitude even when we don't feel grateful. Some people will say, well, I, well, I, I don't feel thankful. I don't, I don't feel grateful this morning. A bit like Andy was talking about. I'm, I'm just, I'm not feeling it right now. Sometimes that can hold us back, can't it? You say, well, I, I, I don't want to express something. I don't want to be disingenuous. Yet the reality, the Bible says, is very different. We can make a choice to be thankful in all our circumstances. And when we do that, actually something remarkable begins to happen. That our emotions and our feelings begin to line up with the gratitude that we're expressing. When we practice thankfulness, our feelings follow. Brian Johnson says, there's an extent to which we have to go through the motions to feel the emotions. Jesus put it rather differently. In Matthew 6, 21, he says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's think about that statement for a minute. Where your treasure is. He's saying that the thing that we choose to ascribe value to, the thing that, that, we deem, that we deem to be important, the thing that we celebrate, the thing that we treat as treasure in our lives, our treasure effectively, well, actually, that's where our heart is going to go. That's where our heart is going to be. In the context, he was talking about the value that, that some people might place on their spiritual life, on their relationship with God. If that, for them, is the thing of great wealth, of great treasure, then actually their, their heart is going to line up and is going to be invested in that place. He's contrasting it with wealth, with money. Actually, if that, if that is the thing that we celebrate, if that is the thing that we desire, if that is the thing that we're ascribing value to in our life, well, guess what, Jesus says? That's where our heart's going to be wandering off after as well. There's that principle in, the, in spiritual things that actually where we ascribe value, where we, where we give our attention, that is where our emotions begin to line up. Again, many studies back this up that actually as we choose to ascribe thankfulness, as we take the, the fact of the things that we have to be grateful for and we choose to express gratitude for them, actually we begin to find ourselves beginning to feel grateful for those things. So the Bible and research seem to be in a great deal of agreement. Gratitude is good for us. But the question I often want to ask when I read articles about this or I listen to podcasts about this is, who are you directing all this gratitude to? It seems to be a wonderfully healthy principle. It's, it's, it's evident that it's a wonderfully healthy principle that we are grateful for things in our life. But, but to whom are you directing that? Often if you read books or podcasts or whatever, you'll, you'll come across some common phrases. You'll hear things like this. You'll hear things like, um, being grateful connects you to a higher power. You hear things like this. You, uh, you say things like, well, we can express thankfulness to the universe. I wonder who the universe is. Or gratitude helps connect you to something bigger than yourself. There's something bigger than yourself. But who is this higher power? Who is that thing that is bigger than ourselves? Can we know? Can we know? Do we want to know? Are we actually content kind of chucking thankfulness out there into the universe? Or do we want to encounter the one to whom we are grateful? Does it matter? One of the first ever Christian leaders uh, in, in history uh, was, was featured in the New Testament. Is a guy called Paul. He traveled extensively around the Middle East, around Europe, uh, teaching people about Jesus, starting churches. And uh, a book in the Bible called Acts uh, tells the story of when he arrived in a place called Athens. Now, at the time, the culture in Athens was really was steeped in philosophy. 
and, uh, and, and, uh, and kind of spirituality. And um, it, uh, kind of a bit like if you, if you walked around Hollywood, you know, you'd immediately just begin to pick up the vibes and pick up the culture of, of entertainment and the entertainment industry. Or if you walked around Oxford, you know, you'd, you'd quickly kind of detect the culture of, of academia and, and study. If you walked around Athens in the first century, it was all about philosophy. It was about different belief systems. It was about, um, it was about faith. And, and people love to explore and debate. In fact, in, eight, in, in Acts 17, it says this. It says, The Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul's walking around. His travels have taken him to Athens, and, and he sees uh, an altar, a place of worship, basically, a place where people gather to express their thanks and their gratitude. And, and on this altar, it is ascribed the words, To the unknown God. To the unknown God. In other words, this is a people who, who were gathering to be grateful and to be worshipful, but they weren't quite sure to whom. They felt that this, we kind of have this sense there's something out there, there's something bigger than us, there's something there in the universe, but, but we don't know who it is. They wanted to connect with that higher power, they just weren't sure who it was. And Paul looks at this and he sees this and he's really moved by it. He, it actually makes him quite sad, makes him quite grieved. And it's not, it's not because Paul's being judgmental towards those people. In fact, if, if you read kind of Paul's writings, if you read his story, you'll, you'll find actually he, his background was he was a massive persecutor of, of Christians and anyone who followed Jesus. So, and you know, he's always really clear, I'm, I'm the last person to be judgmental because, because he, he remembers his life before Jesus encountered him. But because he's been so transformed by Jesus, he, he wants a chance to speak to the people gathered there about his faith. And actually, they are incredibly open-minded. Uh, and, and they invite him to a gathering of their philosophers, and they, they want to listen to what he has to say. Perhaps you're here this morning. Perhaps you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a believer or a follower in Jesus. But maybe you'd like to explore a little bit more about what we've been talking about this morning. I'd love to invite you to a course that we're beginning this week called Alpha. You heard a little bit about it on the video. Alpha is a chance to find out more about Jesus and about this faith in a context where you can explore, you can, uh, you can discuss, you can ask questions. There's nothing that you can't say. There's no obligation to say anything. It might be something that you want to come along to. Uh, I just want to read a, a few verses from this story to, to kind of find out the discussion that, that Paul had with these guys in Athens. Uh, I might read it from this version, actually. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I want to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As one of your own poets has said, we're his offspring. We're his children, like we were singing this morning. 
And therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't really think that the divine being is like gold or silver or a stone or an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such, such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with his justice by the man he's, appoint, he's appointed. He's beginning to talk about Jesus. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. and said, But others said, we want, to hear, we want to hear you again on this subject. So what's he beginning to say to them about Jesus? Well, I think the first thing that he's trying to get across is the sense that actually he's not like you think. He's, he's not like you think. It seems that their expectations, their experiences of religion... In one way, we're a little bit like mine when I was growing up. I, d I didn't grow up with any kind of faith or Christianity in my family at all. We never, ever attended church, I, I don't think. And I, I thought I had a pretty good handle on what God and religion was all about, something that was dr dead and dry and, and lifeless. And all the gods around in Athens were, were statues. They were carved images. They were impersonal. They were cold. That's the way I perceive God, lifeless, disinterested, Kind of like talking to a statue. Paul says, no. He's different. He's dynamic. He's, he's the one who gives life. He's behind everything. He's almighty. He's greater than you could possibly imagine. He's the source of all life. There's no one like him. And then he goes on to try and explain that, that actually Jesus is, is near. He's knowable. Again, I, I never imagined that God would, could be knowable, that I could experience him, that I could know his presence like Andy was encouraging us. Paul, Paul says, well, he, he's not far from a, of a, of any of us and he wants us to reach out to him because he doesn't want to be unknown. He doesn't want to be the unknown God. He doesn't want to be the something greater than your, yourself. He doesn't want to be the universe. He doesn't call us to blind faith devoid of experience, Jesus wants to be discovered, Paul says. He tells that those Athenians who'd been worshipping and thanking something they didn't know, he says there's good news, you can actually know personally the one that you're being grateful to. He says that God knows us deeply, he's determined where we're going to live, he's determined that you would be here and you would live in Bristol, in the place that you are at this moment, in this room, to hear this message this morning so that you might reach out to him, because he's not far away, Paul says. Christianity, Paul always taught, it's not a set of rules or principles, it's about knowing God personally. But at this point, everyone's still listening, everyone's still kind of with him. They're, you know, not that they're necessarily signing up or anything, but they're kind of tracking with him, they're still listening, they're there, they're interested in what he's saying. And then he goes a little bit further. Then he introduces a word which might have surprised some of them and, and, and might surprise some of us. He introduces the word proof. He invites them to examine the evidence of his faith in Jesus. Maybe you wouldn't expect words like evidence and proof to be spoken of in the same sentence as faith. Or maybe you don't expect someone in church to be talking about evidence and proof. Yet the Bible doesn't call us to blind faith. In fact, it invites us to examine the life of Jesus for anyone who comes with a sincere and open heart. The theologian J.P. Moreland says this, he says, In Scripture, faith involves placing trust in what you have reason to believe is true. Faith is not a blind, irrational leap into the dark. 
I watched an interview recently with uh, one of the world's most respected scientists, Francis Collins. He was reflecting on his conversion from atheism to Christianity. And the journey began, he said, when he realized he'd reached his conclusion about God without actually taking the time to examine the evidence. He said this, I realized something very fundamental. I had made a decision to reject any faith view of the world without really knowing what it was I'd rejected. And that worried me. As a scientist, you're not supposed to make decisions without the data. And I was pretty clear that I hadn't done any data collecting about what these faiths stood for. And that led him on an incredible journey of beginning to examine the evidence behind our faith. One of the reasons I think Alpha is so powerful is we spend a good deal of time on that course examining the evidence. Is there any evidence, for example, Jesus even existed? Can can we know that? Can can we say that with absolute certainty? Well, we'll look at that. Is there there anything to suggest Jesus was anything more than just a good guy, a guy with some helpful ideas, teacher? Do you know what? These are really important questions. They are so worth spending a few weeks of life exploring. So Paul starts by by explaining Jesus is, is probably not what you think. He, he, he talks about how actually God is near and God is knowable. And then he boldly invites them to come and examine evidence. And then he says something which finally pushes some of them over the edge. He mentions the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. The ultimate kind of, the ultimate proof, if you like, Paul says, is, is in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now at that point, some people have heard enough. They're like, I was, I was kind of tracking with you so far, but... A man coming back from the dead. Sorry, Paul. Sorry, you lost me there. But there was others who weren't quite so quick to dismiss this as nonsense. They weren't necessarily completely on board, but they'd they'd been stirred by what Paul had said so far, and they wanted to hear him again. Resurrection might sound unusual, but after all, if, if you're willing to entertain the idea that there's a God who created the universe, then... Maybe coming back from the dead wouldn't be so hard. And they began to realize if there's a a tiny chance this is true, well, Jesus really did rise from the dead. This changes everything, doesn't it? Elsewhere, Paul wrote to another church, and he's trying to explain the importance, the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus to our faith. He says, actually, if Jesus didn't didn't rise from the dead, our faith is futile. Christians are people to be the most pitied. It's one of these it's one of these kind of one of these moments we have to answer what do we do with the resurrection if if this actually happened if Jesus actually became a, a living person if Jesus actually took all of the mistakes and all of the wrongdoing and all of the hurt and everything we've ever done wrong on himself on the cross so that we wouldn't have to face the consequences and if he actually proved that then by rising from the dead well that changes everything that changes everything For us, that gives us eternal life. If it didn't happen, do you know what? Everything else, you can forget about that as well, Paul says. It's one of those defining things. If this is true, and this is why we examine it so closely on Alpha, if this is true, the implications are staggering when you look at everything that Jesus said and proved by doing that. If it isn't true, Paul says, just just, just get away from it. It's, It's of no importance. It's such a vital question 
Even if there are aspects of truth in the rest of the Christian message, Paul says, but everything else starts to unravel, though. It's of no value. And so thoughts began to rush through their head. Well, what if there is a God who really is supreme? What if he, what if he really is accessible to us? What if he really does know about us? What if he really did die on the cross, taking the place of the human race, carrying our shame so that we didn't have to live in shame anymore? What if he did prove that decisive victory over death, proving that there is life beyond this one? Well, that would be something worth being thankful for, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would be something worth being thankful for. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We're going to take bread and wine together. For all who want to follow Jesus, this is something that we invite you to do. And this is one way that Christians actually express gratitude to Jesus for what he's done. There's lots of different ways, and this is an important one. It's the moment we remember and we honor the moment where we believe he, he took away, he took away from our lives every mistake we've ever made, everything we should never have done. And he faced the punishment for our sin himself instead of us on the cross. So that actually we don't need to face those consequences. And, and what's happening is when we take that bread and we, and we take that wine, we are, we are honoring what he did. We're saying thank you. And we're receiving afresh the forgiveness that he gave his life for. So if you're here this morning and maybe you identify a little bit with the people of Athens, you're thinking, well, I'm, you know, all of what you're saying, it seems a bit out there to me at the moment. But you know what? I, I do want to hear... I do want to hear you out on this. This seems worth investigating more, like Francis Collins did. Well, I want to invite you. Andy and Cheryl and, and the team are running in the, in the Toby Carvery pub on, starting on Wednesday night, Alpha. Right from session one, we're going to be diving into some of these topics. Is it real? Is God there for us? If that's something, maybe, maybe you've been going to church your whole life, but you're just wrestling with those questions like, yeah, but is it, is it really real? Maybe you're coming back for to church for the first time in a long time. Maybe you have got friends and loved ones who are just wrestling with those questions and you want to ask them with them. Why not come along? You can sign up on our website. You can come and speak to Andy afterwards. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you think, well, yes, I know this. I, I know what the Bible teaches about thankfulness. I know even the one to whom I'm thankful. I, can, I consider myself lucky that I, that I know him. Well, let's take this opportunity to be challenged, to reflect on what we're grateful for. James, uh, in another letter in the Bible, says, actually, we need to be doers, not just hearers of the word. Sometimes we can hear something like this, or we can, or we can hear somebody in the media, or we can hear somebody in the, in the outside world kind of extolling the importance of gratefulness, and we can, we can almost have a prideful response to that, can't we? We can think, well, yeah, yeah, I know that. I'm a Christian. I read my Bible already. But you know what James says, be doers, be doers of that. Do you think there might be many people, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the Christians in the room now, do you think there might be many people out there who are vastly better at being grateful than we are? <laughs> Isn't that nuts? <laughs> when you think about what Jesus did. And yet James says, be a doer of the word. Let's be ones, let this be a part of our prayer life. As we're looking at growing in prayer in this season of church life, let's, let's make gratefulness, let's make thankfulness 
a part of what we do. Psalm 100 says it's the way we enter his presence. Shall we stand together? I'm just going to quickly pray and then I'm going to hand back to Mark.